Southeast Radio's Business Matters with Carl Fitzpatrick. Good morning, I'm Carl Fitzpatrick and welcome to Business Matters. Well, Henry Joseph Grant was part of the team that built Just Eat from a bootstrap startup to a multi-billion dollar IPO. But having assisted many businesses over the years, it was a personal bereavement which caused him to set up a business with a difference. Henry's latest venture, Send Off, will be launched soon, but he joined us now to provide us with a preview and to tell us why this business means so very much to him. Henry, when did you first realise that you had a passion and love for business? Yeah, I think it was pretty early. I always was kind of interested in the internet and new technology and obviously the business use case for those things. So growing up, you know, I was very um, hardworking. I first did my first job at 11 years old and then worked pretty much throughout my life, really. So I always had a um, knack for working and, and hard work. I think it's the Irish DNA. But in terms of business itself, I think it's probably 2008 when I joined Just to Eat. And I really understood, obviously, what was possible from a very, very small beginning. Well, of course, as you say, you were part of the team that built Just Eat from a bootstrapped startup to a $2.4 billion IPO. Talk to us about that incredible journey and what you learned from it. A rocket ship experience, and we basically built it, obviously, from very, very humble beginnings to become the biggest tech IPO for the previous decade. So I think the biggest learning for me was is that everybody needs to be rowing. Um, you know, obviously, there's no ability for you to actually grow that quickly and carry dead weight. Um, so everybody has to be very accountable and embrace their responsibilities. Um, and yeah, essentially, you know, you need to have a team that's obviously want to win. You know, you won't get to where you want to get to if you obviously have people who kind of just half want it. You have to really fully want it. And that was kind of the case with Just Eat. And Henry, what was the secret behind their success and that hockey stick road? So I think I'd like to say we were all super smart. <laughs> but I don't think it was that. <laughs> um, it was timing. It was timing. Um, so if you think about the um, sort of um, period when I joined, I joined to see it in 2008. The iPhone was released the year before, so smartphones would obviously start to take pace and get, get adoption. Um, and then also the recession, right? You know, if you think about 2008 when I joined the company, you know, the recession was really kicking in. And obviously, you know, people were unlikely to go out on a Friday evening and spend £200 on a, on a meal for their, themselves and their wife or vice versa. But they were still going to eat. So, you know, eating in at home became the kind of new luxury. And obviously, just to, just to really capitalised on that. And um, and also, um, I think a lot of the early growth, um, especially when I was on board, was obviously the student town. So we launched in a lot of student cities around the UK and Ireland. Um, so, yeah, I think it was a mixture of factors that combined. But, um, but also, we had a very tenacious and driven team that wanted to win. So I think a lot of those factors combined to create the success that you see today. One of the big problems that lots of world-leading technology companies have is the revolving door of staff coming in and leaving very, very quickly. Was that a problem for Just Eat? And if so, how did you try and overcome it? Yes and no. Um, so I actually, a lot of, I mean, a lot of the kind of perception is, is when you build a very um, fast-growing business, it goes through kind of different rounds of investment, Series A, Series B, Series C, and then towards the IPO. Um, some people believe that you don't need the entrepreneurs anymore. So they think, ah, well, we're big now, and they get a bit complacent. Um, and I think there was a bit of that, just to be honest with you. Um, but also, you know, naturally, some people do not grow with the business. So they kind of, you know, a little bit, you know, get out of their depth in terms of the growth stages. Um, I was actually one of the longest serving employees during my era. Um, and, um, and I think, you know, what I saw was that actually, you know, you don't plan to obviously let people go. Um, but if you actually realize that you do have to let people go, you need to do it very quickly. Otherwise, they get out of their depth and they get old timer syndrome. 
and then you get the old kind of water cooler politics and gossip and stuff like that, really. And I think we didn't have a huge amount of that because we're so busy at Just Eat. Um, but I think on reflection, you know, obviously, you know, um, I think at times you almost have what I call founderitis, where people have served you for so long that you almost kind of feel obliged to keep them in the business. And sometimes the, the right decision is to, like, you know, move them on for their own benefit and to learn. Um, and then in some cases, um, obviously, you need to keep people that actually do want to leave, right? So you need to retain the entrepreneurial flair and talent as well. So I think, you know, we didn't have the perfect utopian company. I don't think any company's got that. Um, but I think we, you know, the good guys, we did good, do a good job of keeping them for as long as we could. The world of sales has changed fundamentally as a result of the pandemic and maybe changed forever as a result of it. What are your thoughts now in relation to developing the sales team for the future? But I think salespeople, for me, normally they're quite rascals of the company, right? They're, they're really good at like the, the stuff that they do in terms of the clients, stuff like selling deals and all the rest of it. But then when it comes to like the behaviours and, and understanding the needs of the business, etc., you know, there's a lot of kind of to be asked there sometimes. So what I've always done with the sales teams that I work with is I actually manage them like a product management team. So we work in sprints, um, which makes the salespeople a lot more accountable and um, understand the needs of the company in terms of the technology side. And also... Um, another kind of tip I've got is actually to get your sales guys to actually spend time on the customer service and customer success teams um, to actually go and do a shift you know, in a call center or whatever it may be. So they actually start to see the other side of the business and have a lot more responsibility to actually what they put into the business. It's good advice. Now, having completed another successful exit recently, you've worked for and with venture capital-backed tech startups. Specifically, what traits do you look for in tech startups? In terms of the, my career, it's been quite eclectic in terms of space. So I've worked for a range of different verticals, from food tech to mobility to discounting, um, and now you know at the end of life space. So um, I don't really care about the industry. Um, what I really care about is the actual solution. Um, so I need to believe in the product. I need to believe in the actual purpose, and you know that was that's what really motivates me. And and in the past, to be completely honest with you, I come back from a sort of commercial-driven background. It was always about, okay, how big can the company be or how much money can I make personally? Um, and I, well, I think we're going to touch on a few things in a minute. I mean, there's, there's been something that's happened in my life where it's completely changed at what I look now for for a company. Um, and I'm a lot more kind of purpose, purpose-based where I'm actually looking for things that actually make this world a better place for us. I mean, I've got children and, you know, I'm a bit more long in the tooth now, a few more grey hairs. And um, whilst obviously, you know, my experience at Just Eat, for example, or Telixo with mobility has been fantastic, you know, getting people from the airport to a city centre or ordering a pizza isn't really changing their life too much, right? So I really want to do stuff now for the rest of my career that actually um, revolutionises and changes people life meaningfully. Now, you've recently announced the details of your new business, Send Off, and it was your own personal tragedy which prompted you to set up this business. Exactly, yeah. So, so I mean, we kind of have half announced it. So and there's a concept called um, Stealth Startup where basically you don't really show what you're doing. Um, but we've actually done a bit of press, so we're kind of semi-self at the moment, where we're actually one foot out, one foot in. Um, I can say a little bit. So um, basically, um, in 2015, um, I had to arrange a funeral for my son. And over the last seven years, obviously, from that experience and onwards, and every single touch point of the actual sort of grief management space, um, I've been really underwhelmed. Um, I've been really kind of, um, you know, quite alarmed that it's quite hard to arrange a lot of the things that you have to do there. Um, I'm from a village in, in County Derry and, you know, obviously, you know yourself in Ireland that the kind of funeral space is kind of very community based. You know, everyone as a community comes together and brings the chairs and the stew and all the rest of it for the funeral. And, um, you know, my kind of vision is I really want to digitize that. I want to make death a much more, you know, um, 
community-based kind of experience, you know, if we can do that with technology, and also to actually um, take away a lot of the friction in terms of the arrangements, the opaqueness, the kind of lack of value, et cetera, et cetera. So it's kind of hard for me to say exactly what it is. We've got the launch announcement coming in next month, um, but we basically are kind of going to improve things at the most difficult time in people's life. And, you know, that's, that's our strap line to make a difficult time easier. It's an interesting concept from what you've said. What type of reaction have you got in terms of doing the market research on this with undertakers and others in that space? Yeah, so so we've done quite a lot of um, varied kind of um, market research about go-to-market strategy. So I've literally gone and sat for evenings with old ladies and old gentlemen in old people's homes, and I've been to funeral directors, and I've been to you know local authorities, and I've been to all different types of stakeholders in the in the sort of space and and users, obviously. Um, and what's what's clear is that actually people, you know, uh, uh, and I've been there obviously with my son's funeral, and you just are not in the right state of mind to be making arrangements. You know, you're feeling completely low. It's the worst possible time, and you know, you want to give the person the best possible send off. And you know, and then the grief management side of things, as the, you know, the bereavement starts to can become a reality, and you accept it. You know, um, there's a lot of people at that point that actually start to get mental health issues, um, even financial problems. Um, so we really want to kind of tackle a lot of those moving pieces. And it actually just isn't purely the funeral. It's actually the kind of, you know, the whole grief process starts when you lose a loved one to actually when you die. Um, so we want to actually be kind of the companion throughout people's life to actually make that experience a lot easier. And Henry, how has this business been a different experience for you so far, given your personal connection with it through your son? Yeah, so I've always been a grafter, right? So I've always really, really worked hard. I think, again, I think it's the Irish DNA. I think it's hard-coded into us. Um, but basically, um, it's a different gravy um, with this because obviously this, this isn't money-driven, so I don't need to do a startup to have an exit or build my reputation. I've kind of done all of that. And, um, you know, for me, it's, it's genuinely mission-driven. Um, so, I mean, at the moment, I've got days where I'm working 8 a.m. till 5 a.m. straight at my office. Um, and, you know, and people think I'm absolutely crazy. And genuinely, um, I have to pull myself away from my desk at 5 a.m. to at least get a two or three or four hours sleep because I'm so passionate and so driven about this space. Um, you know, it genuinely is my son's legacy. So, um, so yeah, I feel, you know, it's, it's, it's nice um, in the sense that obviously you can actually do something that you've understood <clears throat> on the other side of the table. But then also, you know, it's also a pressure because obviously, you know, you want to get this right and obviously you want to have empathy for the market. You don't want to be seen as kind of like a tech startup you know, coming in to stir things up and you know, extract value and not add any value back. Um, and that's why we're building our company to be completely opposite of that and to really kind of be a value add from the beginning. A launch in the second quarter of this year has been mooted, but how do you plan to build this business? So, um, so I mean, obviously, I mean, you know, historically, the businesses that I've been in, um, they bootstrap for a few years and then they go and raise VC and then they keep on raising VC, et cetera. And then, you know, the view is to have like a large substantial acquisition or, you know, uh, exit opportunity, shall I say, or potentially an IPO. Um, it's interesting because I, I, I sat down a few years ago with Bid Stone and um, spent some time with him. And he's the founder of Twitter, co-founder of Twitter. And he basically said that he, after Twitter, he started to look at businesses in a different kind of um, viewpoint. And he built and now builds businesses that um, actually he feels have the potential to be there for 100 years and long after he's gone. And with Sendoff, I genuinely feel that, you know, we, we could build something here which could actually be around for hundreds and hundreds of years. And, you know, also, you know, I don't think it's a better mission statement than actually wanting to improve the lives of literally every human on the planet. So, you know, I think this, this, is, this is my life work. Um, it feels completely different. So for me, I'm not building this with a view to an exit. 
Um, obviously, I think we're going to create a great business because this is a big, big business space. I mean, it's $115 billion per year with 4.5% um, CAGR growth. Um, so it's, it's, it's a huge industry. I mean, don't get me wrong, this could be a massively valuable business. Um, but unless we get it right and, you know, really, really solve the problems we plan to solve, then I, I, know, I don't think it's a win for us. Well, we wish you every success with it now. Before you go, one final question. As you said earlier, you were speaking to the co-founder of Twitter recently. What are your thoughts on Elon Musk mooted to taking over Twitter? <laughs> the million-dollar question, right? <laughs> um, what people don't appreciate is how important Twitter is going to become because obviously Web3, cryptocurrency, etc., which we're now moving into the metaverse, etc., Twitter will be the town square for that. So it will be the most important social network by far. And I think this is why, obviously, Elon Musk wanted it so much. So I don't personally think his mission is actually driven by the free speech crusade. I actually think it's because he wants to have ownership of the central platform for the currency of the future. Well, if you've just tuned in, that was Henry Joseph Grant from Sendoff. And it's great that he plans to build a business that will leave a lasting legacy for generations to come. Southeast Radio's Business Matters with Carl Fitzpatrick.